on Google what it had to say about malnutrition this morning, because A, because I wanted to know, uh, and, and B, because it has some relevance to what I want to say later. UNICEF data. We are still far from a world without malnutrition. While the 2018 edition of the Joint Malnutrition Estimate shows that starting prevalence has been declined, st sorry, stunting prevalence has been declining since the year 2000. Nearly one in four, that's 151 million children under five, were stunted. In 2017, and 51 million suffered from wasting. That's an unbelievable statistic in a modern world, malnutrition. I used to go into, well, over my life, I've been to many people's homes and uh, many houses had children. And uh, opening a cupboard door, you come across these uh, little marks on the door which showed the growth of children or the growth of one individual. And sometimes there's a comparison of these. There's probably three or four on the back of a door Sorry, 1968, this child was here and that child was there. And um, it, it, it um, sort of was, the parent was interested in the development of their children. And um, when a family has a, a baby arrives, it's quite important that baby grows. We wouldn't want to be in a world where a baby doesn't grow and doesn't develop. And it's the same in the Christian life. God wants people who, having found the priceless treasure in life, actually prove its worth. And that's growing in Christ Jesus, growing as a Christian, having development that people don't become just Sunday Christians and Sunday attendances, but they know the power of God at work in their life. The passage we're going to read this morning, it, it sort of talks about promises, the promises of God, which are exceeding great and precious promises. So promises which can help us build our lives. We're going to read um, 2 Peter 1, 1 to 11 this morning. Just as a little introduction, we had worked our way through Romans, looking at it quite carefully and learning how God worked out an amazing plan to bring people to know him. Um, the, God re constantly reminded the Jewish people in their history in this earth that he wanted them to come to him. In Exodus 19, it talks about how that God had lifted them like eagles' wings and brought them to himself. And... As Christians, we look at the truth of the Bible and we see an actual fact we're separated from God and that's what Romans tells us because of our sin and because by nature and because the fact that we're born in sin and we actually follow that pathway through our lives not knowing and not able to pass on anything to other people um, that is good. That's the nature of Adam. He couldn't pass it on. God had given him something then he lost it and he couldn't pass it on. So in actual fact, that perpetuates itself. So God has done something. He stepped into history and done something about that. He has brought a plan where we can find our way back to God through Jesus. And that's an amazing plan. 
And um, so this morning we're going to look at what I'm calling building a forever faith. Having become Christians, Romans, we learnt what that meant, how God's done this. He's brought us into his family. He's given us something amazing that we haven't worked for, we can't work for, we can't add anything to, we can't actually do anything about it. It's purely a gift. We purely receive it. It's the fact that we give God permission to move in on our lives. And unless we give him that permission, he won't come. We give him that permission by saying, Jesus, I receive you as my saviour. Thank you for what you've done in dealing with my sin. And that gives God permission to move in on our lives. And uh, Romans doesn't really go on from there. It does a little bit. It doesn't really go on what it means from there. Having found this Jesus and knowing him as saviour and finding out about this amazing uh, salvation, what the Bible calls it, that we receive through Jesus Christ, then in actual fact, what it rescues us from, it throws us back into it again. So having been released from the law, and, th and the wonder about it, I'm not talking about the things that we can't do and all the rest of it and, and the problems that it gives to us. God throws us back into it to work it out. And as Paul the Apostle writing in the New Testament says, God's purpose is you work out your salvation. You don't leave it there. You work it out. Passiveness in the Christian life is not an option. It's not an option. And we find a bit of the answer to that in the reading that we're going to have. Building a forever faith, it's not my title. I've grabbed it from somewhere else. I thought it fitted quite well uh, to what we're going to read this morning. So 2 Peter 1, 1 to 11. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. do not say you won't fail, but it says you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
What is this saying at the base of it? It says, by knowing Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. By knowing Jesus Christ, you have all that you need for life and godliness. All? All? All that you need for life and godliness. Sometimes our faith, our Christianity, our lives is probably tacked on to the end of our lives as if it's an additional thing, as if it's something, well, we need to acknowledge and we need to give some attention to, but it's not our whole life. What Peter's saying here is in knowing Jesus Christ, you actually have everything that you need for life and godliness. So what is it telling us? It's telling us about what Bible, what preachers have been saying for years. They talk about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Everything that we need is in him for life and godliness, also for the future. That was the experience of the disciples that they lived and run around with Jesus, if you like, that he was quite sufficient. He gave them hope in their day, encouragement and challenges, and they proved that there was something about him that they couldn't get away from. <laughs> you know? That, that, that video we watched on Matthew uh, some time ago was, was lovely because it showed that he was part of their group. You know? He wasn't just above their group, he was part of it. And they couldn't get away from that. That was the experience of the disciples. It was also the experience of his friends and his family. And what did Mary say when Jesus turned the water, before he turned the water into the line? He said, whatever, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. He was sufficient in the home life. He gave color and he gave meaning to family life. Why do you think the crowds came to hear him? Or Nicodemus crept out at night time, probably during a curfew, because he wanted to find out more about Jesus. Or Zacchaeus, he climbed a tree to see more. And the blind man persisted until he got Jesus' attention. What effort are we making in our lives to reach out for Jesus? We have seen how these people, in a small way, reached out. They wanted that more from him, and they got it. They wanted that more for him, and they got it him. Verse 4, we have read about the exceeding great and precious promises. And Paul, again, writing in 2 Corinthians, says, all the promises, there's that word all again, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So someone reading the, old, the Bible in the Old Testament will come across, pros, sorry, come across promises that God made to people. They seemed probably way out and too distant for them to mean anything. But when Jesus came, it, they meant something, you know. He, he brought reality to the promises God made gave purpose, an actual fact that they weren't promises made in thin air. 
the promises were reality. So they find all of the promises of God, find their yes in Jesus. And that puts him in a very exalted and in a very important place in our lives, whatever we aim for and wherever we're going. Jesus is referred to as the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, the cornerstone and the capstone. You see these two ultimates in life. It puts him there. And whatever we make of those statements, the cornerstone and the capstone are very interesting. The cornerstone of a building in earlier times was that all-important first stone. That's where the building started. It's where the building lines took their purpose. So they, from that stone, they would go that way, and that way, and that way. The key, the, 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 sorry, the cornerstone of the building. He's not only the cornerstone, but he is the capstone. So the cornerstone was the projection lines from which the building was constructed outwards and upwards. As elders, when we do reviews, we think about the morning service on a Sunday morning of being inward, outward, and upwards. And how did that meet people's needs? Inward, outward, and upwards. We're talking about here the keystone from which the building starts, and that too has the same relevance. A starting place and its relevance beyond that starting place. In before Christ times, in different nations of the earth, they used to find jars with baby skeletons in them, planted right by the first stone of the building. And what, it's, what we find out, in history, there were sacrificial rites associated with the first stone that was laid. And if we're, as Christians, thinking about all the spiritual things we think about, and we think about Jesus, the first stone that was laid for Christianity wasn't without sacrifice. That was a heathen practice. But as we think of what we have today, it was not without sacrifice because Jesus gave his life for that. So we move on from the keystone to the capstone. The capstone is the completion stone. That's when the building's finished. It's also the, build, the stone which keeps other bits in place. So, for example, if there was an arch built like that, you'd need the capstone right in the middle so that it held the arch into place. And it was considered to be that stone when one could say, no more, it's finished. And we think about the work of Jesus Christ, that it's now finished. Nothing more can be added to the building. He's completed something. And so as we look this morning at Jesus, we see him right at the heart of our need and our lives and what he can do for us. That capstone would sometime have an inscription upon it. could be a date. It could be a, a, a deity or a royalty. It could be just the number of a street. But that building was finished with that inscription on it. And let's remember too that what we have, that takes us back to Romans again, says all that we have in Christ is complete. We can't add a thing to it. The keystone and the capstone. 
So when we come to look at this passive, as I said just a moment, passiveness in the Christian life is not an option. Because we read these words, make every effort to and add to. So if we have any sense of passion for Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he has a growth plan for us this morning. And you know God has a growth plan for each one of us? Individual, it knitted and suited to our own lives and needs and makeup and personality. He has a growth plan for us. When my, one of my grandsons was born, there was, he had food intolerance to milk allergies. And it took a long time to find out what that was. But it, he wasn't getting on because he was having the wrong food. And as Christians, we have to make sure we have the right food. Jesus is known as the bread of life. That's one of his great names. The fact that he can feed people with good food, spiritual food. This morning we're going to just look at those. So why not become a God chaser? Tommy Tenney was the person who wrote a book called The God Chaser. And he asked the questions, what is a God chaser? It's an individual whose hunger exceeds his reach. It's a, a God chaser is someone whose hunger exceeds his reach. And so this morning, does your hunger for Jesus Christ go beyond anything else that you can look after into this life? Is, it your, is he the most important thing in your life? He's the one that you get up and serve and worship. Is he the one that you think about? Or is your life taken over by too many things that you can't fit him in? So Paul said, work out your salvation. And Peter helps us with that this morning. And the first thing Peter talks about is this, add to your faith goodness. Goodness, in its literal interpretation, means moral excellence. And I think there's a, there's a base understanding of that, that we all like to be good. And we all like to do right by other people. But underlying it, this is the reason. It's fulfilling the purpose for which we were made. That's goodness. Fulfilling the purpose for which we were made. And what was the purpose for which we were made? God gave Adam authority to rule in life. He gave him intellect and ability. He gave him goodness and perfection. And we know the story of that garden in Eden where that was lost. But fulfilling the purpose for which we made is nothing, it's not something we can redeem. Only God has redeemed that. For us. So where can I do good? Where can I do good? Where do I fit in in Beacon to do some good? What is my place to do good? Fulfilling the purpose for which I was made to be here. How best can I serve my brothers and sisters? Am I being a good neighbor and a citizen? Do I honor my spouse? Yeah, we have arguments, and yeah, we don't get on sometimes, but is there a basic honoring 
of my partner, my spouse. You know, when resentment comes in, it's a growing thing, and it's a destroyer of marriages and relationships. So avoid resentment of your spouse or partner or your children. Goodness, that for which you were made to be a ruler in life. Do we honor our larger family, our relations? Do we honor our leaders in the church and outside the church? Do we honor the infrastructure we have around us? Do you know actually we do quite get quite a good deal for our council tax if you work it out? Your rubbish is taken away from your front door, your street. I know we complain and all we do, but you work out the pennies in the end where we get quite a good deal. And for the income tax, we get quite a good deal. Let's honour what we have because there are many who don't have these things. So moral excellence, fulfilling the purpose for which we were made. And Paul writing to the Ephesian church, he said, you know, we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's amazing how it keeps cropping up in the Christian life. Whatever church they write to, this moral excellence, this sense of goodness, fulfilling the purpose for which we were made. And next he goes on to knowledge. What's this knowledge we're meant to add to our, our faith? The base meaning underneath, it's not, not learning and understanding. The meaning of the word knowledge is here, ultimate knowing. Ultimate knowing. Come on, some people, what would you replace with that word ultimate knowing? Have a go, someone. One word that re can replace ultimate knowing. Here's the clue. It begins with T. Truth. <laughs> now, that wasn't difficult, was it? You know, our Bibles are known as the truth, the word of God, which is the truth. And that says something important about the book we have. It's ultimate knowing. It's about Jesus because he's the word. He is the word. Ultimate knowing. Just think about that. Everything this world needs to know, understand, whether it be science of wisdom, ultimate knowing is in Jesus. Just simple, isn't it? But it's such a, so amazing. And our Bibles are ultimate knowing too. God wanted to provide people of the earth with a book of all books, our Bibles. You know, let's treasure them. Let's respect them. I know it's on here, but it doesn't take it away. God has compiled a completeness 
of ultimate knowing, what we call his word. And Jesus is known as the word of God. So it's drawing us to him, isn't it? But it's drawing me to him anyway, because he's ultimate knowing. The Bible's used worldwide as an education tool. It is verifiable history. It's a history book with hidden artifacts. If only we dig them up. If you want something to do, go home and learn what the number 10 means throughout the Bible. It's amazing what you find out. But it's a complete book. It's, a, it's an amazing book. It's God's paper on pathways to spirituality. God's paper on pathways to spirituality. That bit that we've lost through sin, we regain through knowing Jesus Christ through the word. Through our Bibles. And I'm coming because, you know, this knowledge which we need to add to our faith is ultimate knowing. And that ultimate knowing, that truth, we can find in Jesus. The next one is self-control. Ooh, ooh. I don't know, our minds go AWOL, don't we, when we think of this, this word. But um, as Martin Gibson said several weeks ago when he came to us, he said, what the Bible meant then when it's written means exactly the same as it does today to us. The cultures change and the differences change, but what we're reading was written in the Greek language and words were used from the Greek culture to try and explain things so that we could understand them. And the word used here, which has been translated into self-control, is thought of in two familiar uses for this word. Number one, the athlete who declines food that will impair his or her performance. So you have the athlete who's on a training performance and said, here's a bag of six donuts for you. No. I'm not allowed to eat them at the moment. I've got to get up early in the morning and I've got to run for 16 miles in my training program. So that's no. That's not good for me. I may be later, but not now. I can't. I'm on a training program. So that's the first mean meaning of this word. That's how the Greeks would have understood this word in their culture. Number two, someone who was not ruled by the desire for inappropriate sexual activity. You know this world is saturated with se sexual misconduct and activity. It's blighting the church. It's stopping Christians grow. And I hate to say this, but teenagers growing up encouraged to be themselves. And I understand that. And I, there is a sense when it's right for a person to be themselves and not to be someone else. Or say, for example, a child was a compulsive liar. Would you say to them, well, be yourself? If it's a compulsive stealer, would you say to that child, well, you just be yourself? In the era of sexual activity, then so would you say to the child, just be yourself? Or be as God created you? So the Greeks understood this word. 
you know? Self-control was actually changing, in some cases, to be what God wants you to be. Or being what God wants you to be as God created you. So the, the idea of these two. Last week, Barry mentioned the positive side when he was reading this. He nearly got my sermon away last week, and I'll deal with him later over that. But <laughs> That's neither here nor there. But it was good, the positive side to self-control, actually doing the things we want to do, what we need to do. God gives us that ability that are good for us. And you know, this morning, we're talking about this adding to our faith, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's the way the Holy Spirit works in our life. He helps us do these things. In Titus 2, it says, the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's nothing we can do of ourselves. Actually, God teaches us how to do it. And sometimes we ask, well, I'm asking God for this. Why, do I, why doesn't he just do it? Well, because he wants to give you more than that. He wants you to give the experience of learning how you do it yourself. That experience. He teaches us to say no. He gives us back that purpose for which we were created. That's amazing. God gives us back to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, there's some areas where we wish we could control ourselves, some things harder than others, some things we get frustrated about, eating maybe, that's just the simple one. I just can't help it. I can't. That chocolate is so irresistible. You know? And that's fine. It's a good thing God has given us to do, to eat. But I hope I'm sensitive here in saying some people really struggle. And God wants to help us with it. Eating, drinking. The Bible talks about that. It doesn't condemn alcohol or drinking, but it says be responsible. Learn how to use it. Self-control. What about the tongue? What we speak about, what we say. Is that? Yeah, James said it's uncontrollable. So how do we learn to control what we say? What about our spending? Are you a compulsive spender? You say, well, I, I, I really wanted to save that, but I see that and I just can't help myself. I, I, I just have to spend the money, and some people are shopaholics. And it's just that they, I'm not condemning people here, but some people say, I just wish I wasn't like that. We know where we want to go, but getting there is beyond our grasp. And the Holy Spirit helps us to get beyond where we are. What about entertainment? As an elder, I just want to really challenge everybody here this morning about what you watch on television. There's a program I really wanted to watch on television. I'm not going to tell you what it was. But I got so far into it, and I said to Margaret, I'm not watching the rest. The two reasons I'll give you are either the repeated word of Jesus or Jesus Christ or something like that. Now, I know some people won't agree with me. They say, well, it's only art, and it's not me saying it. But in actual fact, I want to be part of that. I don't want to do it. And the other one was explicit sexual activity 
about nine o'clock in the evening. And it's not because I don't want my children to watch it, because I haven't got children at home anymore. It's because I, as a Christian, feel I don't need to watch that. Actually, when you come down to it, it's pornography. And people say, no, it's art. No, it's pornography. You used to buy it once in a magazine. Still life, just photos. Entertainment, self-control, images on a computer, comments, exaggeration, language, anger. I could go on. These are all things in life which God can give us help with. Self-control. Add to your faith self-control. The next one is perseverance. Pressing in when you feel like giving up. And don't give up when you're fed up. You know, I find a lot of people get fed up in church. And it's usually with silly little things. It's either a comment someone has made. Or they feel that they're, they ought to be doing something more than probably they're really capable of doing. Or something beyond their grasp. And they get fed up. Because they feel they're not recognised. And it's usually for the silly things. It's usually for those silly things. But you know, Jesus Christ is far more important than all these niggling things in life. He's worth following. His church is worth attending and being part of. The whole part of us needs to know we need to grow up. We're an army, aren't we? We know the discipline that's built into our armies. We're a people. We're a building, as Peter said. We're a building which God is building. And we're living stones built into that building. So don't give up when you're fed up and press in. And secondly, don't listen to the lies of Satan. Because very often you can go away from being amongst your brothers and sisters and feel like nothing. You can feel just by a comment or something, or maybe God hasn't spoken to me this morning. He hasn't spoken to me. We can feel that a nothingness coming on. And so say to me, say, well, you are nothing anyway. <laughs> you don't mean anything, you know. You've got the wrong color hair anyway. Well, you've got your laces undone this morning, so how can you be? So perseverance. Keep learning the power of God's promise. Godliness, the meaning here is being right with God and also with others. That's sort of a base understanding of the word godliness here, being right with God. And God himself has put himself firmly in the center of this ultimate knowing. Because he wanted to be right with people and so he sent Jesus and did something about it. And through Jesus we're made right with God godliness and we're called to be like that as God has acted himself towards us and so we need to ask our question is there someone that I need to speak to or put a matter right in our family or other close relation it might be tough live in harmony with one another Barry mentioned this last week and so I'm not going to talk about it the brotherly kindness 
aspect of lingering with people. And love, which is a first thing, which completes the virtues as a sort of conclusion to my whole ambition as a believer and as a Christian. I think we all know 1 Corinthians, no we don't, I'm assuming something here. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love. It nearly always gets read at wedding services and stuff like that. But uh, it's the wrong love at a wedding service. Love completes the virtues as a sort of badge of my growing up in Christ, of my becoming a mature Christian. It's that badge, the love. Because we do things because of love, and we choose to do that because Jesus loved us. The choice I make in my service to God and towards others, I show a deference to them. I show a submission in spirit to them, which ennobles them as like a Lord to me. But we don't. We look down on other people sometimes. We need just to ennoble them. That's very hard to do. Do you know we need to ennoble our spouse sometimes? My son actually posted an awful picture of his wife this week. It's their 15th wedding anniversary. He said, with you, I have the best memories in life. <laughs> but uh, is that with Jesus, with you, I have the best memories in life? But it is, you know, with people, with you, I have the best memories in life. You know, looking up to others. My uncle was like that. He, when he talked to me, he was a pastor at Chester City Mission. And when he only needed to st start talking to me, and I just felt like that. You know? He raised me up. There's a song as you get. He raised me up. Isn't that amazing? He raised me up. And we can do that with others too. But we also need to do it with our children. When I go into houses and hear how parents talk to their children, I'm amazed. Really amazed. I won't go into that any further. But we need to ennoble our children. Raise them up. And so it completes. And I must finish here. He ends with a warning and two promises. And maybe you can look at those in groups this week. The warning and the two promises. Just to mention one thing, it, one translation of, the, uh, of those last few verses in verse 8 through to 11 is that if you don't do these things, you will be barren and unfruitful. And the I was interested by the word barren. It really means something that stopped working. So if you talk about part of a, a female life cycle, she comes to barrenness, her reproductive system has stopped working. So we can become like that in our Christian life. I think in our spirits we know when it stopped working. And the Holy Spirit challenges us, we just need to move on. And he's saying, come on, get to it, add to your faith. The world's your oyster. And it finishes in verse 11 with the emphasis on the richness of the welcome that we receive in God's kingdom. It's not the emphasis not on the kingdom because that's a very big thing. But if we look to the future, the word that's used there is, again is this word 
out of the, the Greek language. And it's used to describe an Olympic athlete who had won and a mass of people had gathered to cheer him in breaking out in triumphant songs. So it looks to the future when we both stand before God and we actually stand in the view of the world with Jesus and we are welcomed. It's, it also tells you if you don't do these things, the other side, and you can look at that in groups too. But let's look at the positive because we have all the opportunities that God ever gave us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, brother. Father, thank you for this time. You speak to us, Lord, and just invite Bob to come and to share. Maybe draw us into a sense of the need of prayer and where we need to go from here. Over to you, Bob.